Uh, well, the task of a Christian, in one sense, is to simply behold God. Uh, to behold him, as I, as I just prayed, in his goodness, in his glory, in his grace. To, to see him as he is and be moved to worship, love, obedience, and trust. And all of that, all of our response begins with first beholding God. Uh, there was an old 90s, early 2000s worship song called Worship Starts With Seeing You. And that's really true. Worship begins as we see God, as we behold him for who he is. Um, and everything else that is part of the Christian life begins as we first behold God. And we see that he is worthy, not just of our, of our words, not just worthy of an hour on Sunday, but worthy of our love and devotion every minute of every day. And so our task today is really just the same as every Sunday, even though it is Christmas. Our task is to behold God. And to do that, we're going to consider God in the incarnation, um, which we celebrate at Christmas. Now, incarnation is just a fancy word for God putting on flesh. Um, you know, if you think about, if you break apart the word incarnation, you have the word carn, carne in there. Um, perhaps that brings to mind the Spanish word carne, which is meat, which is just another way of saying flesh, right? So there's your etymology lesson for the day. Incarnation means put on flesh, coming in the flesh. God came into earth as a human. That is the main message of Christmas. Um, all of the other pieces, the shepherds, the angels, uh, the gifts, the star, Mary and Joseph, they are all just the supporting cast to God putting on flesh and coming as Jesus. Jesus is the main act actor. So for our text today, we're going to take the most famous incarnation text, John 1. Uh, we're going to really just focus on verses 14 and 18, but let me just read the whole um, from verse 1 all the way through 18 for you um, to get, get the context, and then we'll, we're going to ask of this text, how does this help us behold God? So what do we learn about God from this? So let's, let me read this, starting at verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is using this, this term, uh, logos, or the Word, uh, to refer to Jesus here, as becomes clear. He was God, but he was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and life without him Oh, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is, was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, three things. We're just, just going to look at three things today that um, we behold about God from this text. First, we behold that God is a revealing God. God is a revealing God who desires to be known by us. God is a revealing God. Now, there are two types of people or two ways that to contradict this claim. The first type is the agnostic or the deist type who says that, yes, there probably is a God, but we really can't know much about him. He created the world, but since then he, he takes a standoffish approach, just lets things go, doesn't really engage with the world, doesn't actively reveal himself to the world. We can try to speculate about what he's like, but we can't really know. Perhaps we are tempted to, to think this or functionally live like this sometimes. We can't really know God with any confidence. A second type of person wouldn't specifically deny that God reveals himself at all, but would say God's revelation is limited to his mighty acts among Israel, his, his laws given to Israel, what he did in the past. God acted from heaven, but he would never, he would never come into his creation as a human being. I mean, didn't God himself say, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In other words, you can argue against the incarnation with both intellectual reasons, well, we can't really know what God is like, or religious reasons, well, God is too distant. God, God is too set apart from us to be, to be seen, to be really known. But what does John say about Jesus? He actually references God's words to Moses. He says, no one has ever seen God. That is true in a full and complete sense. But then he says, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side has made him known. And so on the one hand, it is true that there are things that keep us from fully seeing God. Surely this is due to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of of mankind in our current state. And yet at the same time, it is equally true, but it, it, incredible that God goes to great lengths to reveal himself to us, to make himself known. God himself overcomes the barriers and the obstacles of our sin that we might know him. And not only know him by faith, but actually that we might see him with our eyes. He takes on flesh, takes on human flesh that we might know him. Um, perhaps a, a helpful, though imperfect analogy. We love stories of long lost family members finding each other, right? Perhaps two siblings that were separated at birth find each other when they're, they're older. Um, perhaps to uh, perhaps some, some children who had been adopted or abandoned as children uh, find their real father or mother, or parents who had abandoned their children seek them out when they are older. Such reconciliation is a beautiful and touching thing. But how much more astounding, more beautiful, when God pursues 
takes all the initiative to find and be known and be reconciled with us, especially when we were the ones who had broken the relationship, who had run away. God is a revealing God. He moves towards us. And what he reveals about himself, we are told, is his glory. In his becoming flesh and dwelling among us, John says, we have seen his glory. Uh, the word glory means radiance, splendor, honor. God wants to see the radiance and splendor and honor of who he is. His fall to the, wor fall to the ground in worship, greatness. His humble ourselves before him and love him and desire him, goodness. And the glory of God doesn't just come from certain of his aspects, but not others. Every attribute of God is glorious. Every attribute of God leads us to worship him and love him and be in awe of him and enjoy him. And we see this glory in Jesus. However, the emphasis, on, uh, emphasis here is on the glory of his grace. We are told he is full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so sometimes we are tempted to think that God's glory is just seen in his might and his power and his authority and his justice and his righteousness and all of this. And of course, it is seen in all of those things, but it is also just as much seen and sometimes often the emphasis in Scripture is on the glory of his grace, his compassion for sinners, his tenderness towards, towards us in our weakness, his drawing near towards us rather than pulling away from us. We see that here and we see that throughout Scripture. Uh, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God, show me your glory, God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. So Moses asks for glory. God says, here's my goodness. So God is making a very clear point that my glory is connected to my goodness. When you see how good I am, you will see how glorious I am. And then right after that, in the next chapter in Exodus, God goes on to reveal himself and he says, here's who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God would have us know him as. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians, says that God planned, sorry, in Ephesians, God planned his salvation in such a way that it would be to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, God's purpose is that those who are saved would be led to behold his glorious grace and praise him because of it. So the glory that God wants us to see in him necessarily includes his grace for sinners. Yes, he is holy and righteous. Yes, he is just and will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, he will judge the world in perfect justice, and it will be a fearsome thing for those who reject his mercy. But God continually highlights and puts a spotlight on his, his glorious grace that we might turn to him and cling to him as our only hope. 
And we see this with greatest clarity as we look at Jesus. We see that God come in the flesh and we see how he engages as a human being with other humans. That he receives all who come to him. That he shows compassion on the weak and on sinners. And he ultimately gives his life to die for us. So God is a revealing God. He wants us to know him. A second thing we behold in these verses, we behold that God is a God who desires to dwell with us. Not only does God want us to know him, know things about him, say, as we know a historical figure like Abraham Lincoln or Michael Jordan or Martin Luther, but God wants to dwell with us, to be known in a personal way. When, when John writes here that, that Jesus dwelt among us, uh, the phrase literally means he pitched his tent, which is a reminder of God's dwelling among his people Israel in the tabernacle or tent and later the temple. This dwelling among people, dwelling among humanity, is something that God has been up to in, from the very beginning, actually, in, in ever-increasing and intimate ways. But certainly this took on new meaning when God put on flesh and dwelt among us as a human being. This was, this was unthinkable. I mean, how, what a mystery and wonder that God would actually be born into his creation as a human being. Um, I, probably for us today, the idea quickly loses its wonder because it's, Christmas is just such a massive event in our culture and we sing all these songs and we watch all these movies and we're like, yeah, of course. But if you were a Jew living in the time of Jesus and you were trying to wrap your mind around this Jesus, not just being a Messiah figure or somebody sent from God or a prophet, but was actually God himself in the flesh, that was no easy thing to do. That would be mind-blowing. God is in heaven. He's a spirit. You can think of Moses, who dares to ask God to show him his glory, as we just said. And that was a very bold thing to do. God, show me your glory. No one thought to ask God to, to do this, to come in the flesh. That was God's idea. We see that God takes the initiative to overcome what separates us from him and move towards us. And this is something that as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that God is, will continue to do. Um, Jesus putting on flesh and living among us is a foreshadowing of God's eternal plan to dwell among his people in the new creation. In Revelation 21, we read a couple weeks ago, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In that day, we will experience the presence of God, the character of God, the attributes of God in direct and personal and obvious ways that engage our whole, our whole being, our emotions, our will, our mind, our body. We will experience the welcome of his grace, the comfort of his presence, the delight of his love, the protection of his power, the wisdom of his might, and the peace of his rule. And not just by faith, but by sight. We will know them at the deepest part of our beings. God will dwell among us. And then a third thing we behold, 
in the incarnation, we behold that God will accomplish his salvation. So really to behold the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation, you have to move forward to Easter, right? You have to consider why Jesus came. As amazing as it is just to consider that God became flesh, and that is amazing, to get the fullness of it, you have to look at why he did this. And we are told why. Jesus says in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later in John 1, we're told, uh, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The incarnation highlights the grace of God, the glorious grace of God, because it is not primarily God giving a command that we might obey and find salvation. It is primarily God coming that we might believe and find salvation. God puts on flesh and comes into the world to accomplish our salvation so that we, so that as all of scripture testifies, salvation might be of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. It is something he does. If God was merely content to give us commands, he could have just continued to do what he did in, with Israel in the Ten Commands and just give us commands. If he was content to merely teach us about himself, he could have continued just to send prophets and, and various figures and, and shown himself in, through miracles and mighty acts and all of this, as he had done. But as great as those things were, God's purposes were even greater, even more wondrous and mysterious. In his eternal wisdom, he planned to take on flesh and come in order to go to the cross and suffer and die for us. And if you think about this, there's a lot of comfort in that fact. There's a lot of comfort in seeing that God did not stay in heaven, just merely speaking to us, did not just give us commands, did not just tell us that he's a merciful God. But he came and embodied mercy. He came and showed us what mercy looks like. The doing isn't on us. He did it. The, the earning isn't on us. He earned it. The deserving isn't on us. He did it because we didn't deserve it so that he could display the riches of his glorious grace. That's the whole point. That's, that's the whole point of why Jesus came, why Jesus lived and suffered and died, so that he could be seen to be glorious and graciously and humbly and sacrificially saving undeserving sinners whose sin deserved nothing less than death and condemnation, which he bore for us. And to tie this all back around, our job is first and foremost to simply behold that. To behold his doing, his earning, his deserving, and grasp it, grasp him as sufficient for salvation. Are, are there more things that we are called to as Christians? Yes. But the first and most foundational requirement is to behold him. And to continue to behold him as we go on through life, to continue to behold him as the grounds and motivation for anything and everything else that we are called to do. 
In other words, God's purpose for your salvation, if you are his, is not merely your salvation, but your beholding. Not merely objectively to save you, though that's true, but also subjectively that you might behold him in ways that increase your joy. Behold him in ways that deepen your trust. Behold him in ways that sustain your faith, motivate your obedience, and build your hope. And everything else about the Christian life flows out of this. Worship starts with seeing you. Trust starts with seeing you. Obedience starts with seeing you. Love starts with seeing you. We must first see his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, this is what we do every Sunday. This is what we will continue to do as we begin a new year next Sunday. And throughout that year, we will continue to gather and seek to behold God in his glory, that we might love him, worship him, obey him, and live in ways that glorify him. Let's pray.